Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So end of tax year approaching. Lots of people out there doing a lot of thinking about their own personal investments this time of the year. So joining us for a conversation on what individual investors are thinking and how they think, really, delighted to welcome Claire Walsh, an independent personal finance expert. Claire, welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me. Pleased to be here. Hi, Claire. Good morning. Before we jump into the topic for today, could you just give the listeners a bit of, I guess, background about you and what you've been involved in and what your experience is in this area? In my early 20s, I got into self-investing and I didn't realise that was not commonplace because generally people don't talk about their money that much. And that sparked my interest and realising that financial advice was a career choice and perhaps if I was good at this and interested. So that led me to retrain as a financial advisor. I spent about 10 years advising personal clients. I then moved into a spokesperson role with Schroeder's and subsequently moved into a role with Schroeder's Personal Wealth, which is a joint venture between Schroeder's and Lloyds Bank. And my role there, I was sort of head of advice strategy. So looking at our overall advice proposition and how to drive improvements in that. And I'm now on my own and I'm doing bits and pieces of media commentary, bits of consulting, and I'm sort of exploring what's become my passion area, which is ethical investing and sort of ESG space. Super. Well, loads to get into there. I'm really interested to tap into some of your experience there on advising individuals for all that time. Before we get into all that, Claire, why don't you just let us in on one thing we should maybe know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? Well, I was amongst a squad of roller skaters who were the first time the UK was invited to field roller skaters for the World Roller Skating Championships when I was age 12. Wow. Wow. World <laughs> Roller Skating Championship. That is awesome. <laughs> I grew up on the west coast of Scotland, so it was this tiny little village, and this lady had moved there, Liz, who had previously ice skated to a really high level, and so she moved there and she had daughters, and there was very little sort of sporting activities or anything, but there was a village hall, so she started up this roller skating club and got all of us, like, skating really, really well, so it was a bit like, I could imagine some sort of cool running style film of this, like, this small posse of, who they go to the World Roller Skating Championships. Yeah, it was like that. Oh, that film is crying out to be made. That needs to be a Netflix thing or something, doesn't it? But did you still do a little bit of roller skating? You can do some of the old moves? No, I, I sadly gave it up when I discovered boys and alcohol as a teenager. Oh. And wasn't as committed to it. Fair enough. I do have a few friends that have started up roller skating again and they're finding oh, really? it quite therapeutic. So, yeah, so perhaps it would be a good one to get back into. <laughs> cool. Well, Claire, turning to the subject of individual investors, Help us understand how individual investors are sort of feeling and thinking, do you think, right now in terms of what are the issues that are top of mind for individual investors, given everything we've been through over the last year, where equity markets are, everything they're thinking and reading in the press. How does that all boil down into what they're thinking, do you reckon? I think that people are very nervous. And I think that whilst the majority of people who have some money, middle and higher earning households and retirees sort of people who generally have money to invest have actually done quite well out of this pandemic. So most of them have more money and they haven't necessarily seen a fall in their incomes and they are probably spending a lot less. So they're generally in a better position. 
But I think, again, the sort of people who are conscientious about how they invest their money are nervous about all of the sort of the news of what's going on in the world. And obviously, it's not just COVID. There's like a lot of political uncertainty as well. And I think that all contributes to people feeling quite nervous. And I think the other thing is there isn't a clear um, narrative or rationale as to why investment markets picked up again either. Um, I don't think that the current values that we're seeing are really reflective of the underlying fundamentals. And possibly that's not talked about as much in the mainstream media, but I think people are conscious of it. And that's conversations I've had with real people as well. You turn on the news and you see some positive news in terms of vaccines, some less positive news in terms of the pickup, the take up of vaccines and various other risks. And then you see your equities having gone up a lot. Are you seeing I think what we'll see is people sitting on cash a lot more. Before we started recording, we were sort of mentioning about ISA season and things like that. And I think people will be hesitant to put money in. So I think more money into the markets right now, when whereas historically markets going up, people want to sort of pile in. I think there'll be a lot more caution around that this time. I was going to ask whether you're seeing investors really sort of taking action so that there's a nervousness, but are they selling equities at this point because they're sort of banking gains or is it almost a I'm kind of going to sit tight and if I've built up some cash I'll keep it in cash but if I've got some money in equities I'll leave it in equities are you thinking that investors are actually sort of whipsawing a little bit more in terms of changing their investments my perception of what I, I think people will do and from looking at data and also from I guess history but rather than having some sort of broad basis is that I think people will be inclined to sort of maintain the status quo so it's hard to know, should I take money? I'll, I'll leave the money that's invested, but I won't necessarily put more in. So I think those cash reserves that have been piling up, I think people will sit on those cash rather than necessarily invest it so much. And I guess just thinking about your experience and what you observed, I suppose, over the last year. So individual investors that already had savings probably better off as a result of the various events of the pandemic. But clearly, if we were sitting maybe just under a year ago when we were at sort of the bottom of the equity markets. Did you observe lots of investors changing their investments quickly then, or was it still a sit tight and no sort of jerk reaction in that? In my previous company at that point, we were really pleasantly surprised by the feedback we got from advisors and also sort of speaking to other advisors in the community about conversations they were having with their clients. I think for advised clients, that's one of the underrated selling points of having a financial advisor to guide you through this, so this sort of robust conversations advisors have with their clients about their own financial plan and their aptitude to risk and their capacity for loss. It's in those situations that that really comes to the fore. So whereas I think somebody who's self-investing may have been much more likely to pull the plug. And I think there was data out there around that, around the level of trading activity, particularly last year on direct consumer platforms like your Hargreaves and your AJ Bells and your more sort of I'm going to say esoteric trading platforms had a hive of activity last year. And I think that is people trying to guess the direction of travel and make short term trades. But I think for more for advised clients taking a more long term view, they stuck the course. It's really interesting to hear you say that and reflect on that. And I guess there's this sort of cliche, I think, or a trope, you might say, in the institutional investor community, I think, which is that a lot of managers will say, oh, yes, we all know that individual investors, they'll panic at the first line of trouble. And then that creates opportunities for other people to sort of profit. And 
for years, I've been kind of questioning whether that is still really true, because I guess you've had a change in business model for a lot of the firms that serve individual investors to a more advised model from a sort of fund platform type model, for want of a better description. And wondering whether actually there is much better sort of behavior now among individual investors because a lot of them are being advised and you've got that relationship with your advisor and they can steer you through it. So have you seen that changed over time? It sounds like you're agreeing with that sort of take, but have you seen that sort of change over sort of 10 years? Well, I think advised clients, but actually I think you've got more growth in the unadvised space now. It's much easier to self-invest. And also historically, when people self-invested, they bought shares and they didn't have access to trade those quickly. So I would say probably the opposite. You've probably got more people and the rise of sort of social media and with people, the Reddit stuff with game shop. Um, anyone can be a day trader now. So does that mean, I guess, then that markets remain a little bit inefficient as a result of this and therefore opportunities still remain? Those people make up a small segment of the market. It's the big institutional players that make up the bigger proportions. And big institutional players are also run by people with biases, exactly. which is what you see, which is why I think it's almost funny that I'm talking about the little people, the small individual investors and the fact that financial advisors caution them. But you see big institutional investors making wildly feelings-based, sentiment-based decisions rather than looking at the fundamentals too. Absolutely. Again, that's been something that I've said many times. I think there's a real reticence to admit the existence of bias when you're an investment professional. It's almost like point out the biases and everyone else who's not professional, but oh, hang on a second, because we're professionals and this is our job. Of course, we're not biased. And you see that all the time, I think. Everyone's biased. So that's why I've always pushed back against people who sort of say, oh, retail money is kind of going to do silly things because all money can do silly things, I guess. But moving on from that point slightly, I mean, I suppose a big part of our job as investment advisors to institutions is thinking through things like risk, active versus passive management, asset allocation, those sort of things. I'd love to get a sense of how those conversations go with individuals. So maybe just starting with the risk thing. How do you start a conversation with someone about the right amount of risk in their investments? I found the best way to do that is to look at historical performance and to actually explain how investments work, explain how a collective investment fund works and give really real life examples. So sort of talk about a UK equity fund and the fund managers picking these things and then show how that's performed over time. It's obviously increasingly historical now, but I always went back to 2007 and went, if you invested in the height of the market, this is what you would lose. And you try and take them on that sort of I'm going to say the psychological journey of going, right, if we put your 100,000 in in 2007 and then six months later, I was telling you it was worth 65,000, how would you have felt and what would you have done? And really painting that picture because you're looking at a graph where everything's gone up until and even now, because it was so short, because the drop was so short and the rebound so quick last year, I think it almost could instill a false confidence in people because when nobody knows what tomorrow looks like and so you've always got to prepare people for that. And I think that's sort of framing it around getting their psychology and getting their kind of understanding of how they would feel about things. Because as an advisor, what you really don't want to do is invest somebody in some and have them do that, have them lose a bit of money and then pull it out because they feel so uncomfortable about it. And I think that's the grounding. And then it's a case of talking about their financial plan and their capacity for loss and linking how they feel with what they can actually afford to do. So that was kind of my approach to it. Because I think some other people would come at it from the other way of sort of going, okay, well, here's your plan. Here's what you can afford. And here's why you should take this level of risk. 
But I think having that kind of getting the sense of their thoughts and their feelings first and foremost, and that's how you'll get their buy-in to what you're actually doing. And I got it wrong sometimes as well. I had those conversations with people. I still had people pull out in dips. I had two people in a small dip. I think it was when China had misreported things a few years ago and the markets dipped about 10%. And they'd been invested for a matter of months and they, no, I don't want it after having these in-depth conversations. People can say they will do things. You can have a conversation in theory, but until they've actually experienced it with their own money, they may react differently to how they think they would. I really like that way of building it up based on feelings first, because you're right, the sort of approaches I've come across are very much more from a financial standpoint. You can afford to lose this amount of money, but that doesn't mean you want or would feel okay about losing that amount of money. So it really made me think back to, I think we recorded a podcast last summer and there was a comment about it being perhaps not unhelpful that the market had been shaky because investors had seen markets go up for years and years and years and years. And actually, it was a bit of a sort of reality check almost that risk is real. Risk can really sort of come out. And it did. But then to your comment just now, the rebound has been so sharp and the dip was so short lived that actually does that teach people a lesson or not, I guess. We did an episode with Greg Davies, who I'm sure you know, Claire, a while ago. And he has a great way of talking about this, doesn't he, where he talks about your emotional liquidity which goes to your point about what you can sort of put up with in the short term is different to your long-term ability to make trade-offs between higher and lower levels of growth, and which I think is exactly what you're getting out there. There's this sort of, we can all sit down and say, theoretically, you've got a 40-year time frame, so your investment should look a certain way, but then you've got to overlay on that the chance that someone is going to make decisions in the moment. I guess it's hard though, isn't it? Because it's difficult to say, here's a situation, how would you feel? I mean, that's always a tough question to ask someone, isn't it? It is, but I think it's better to have that conversation than not have that conversation. And that's what I mean. So like framing it, like the way I would frame it would be talk about their amount of money. Like, okay, so imagine if we'd done that then and then really talk, and this is how it would be. And that brings it to life more than just the theory of it. But yes, it is still a theoretical conversation. And there's the flip side of that as well, is that I think I very much found that people Until they've experienced things, they don't trust them that much. So they were wary of financial advisors, they're wary of financial services industry. And I think sort of surveys show this all the time, that people don't trust financial services. They trust their own bank. They trust organisations that they have a personal relationship with, but they don't trust it as a whole. So when I was advising anyone coming new as a new client doesn't trust you, it takes some time to build it up. There's an element that they think, I may never see this money ever again when they're investing it with you. So some people are starting from the point of you talk about all this risk, but they just worry about also fraud and being scammed. And if all of this is some sort of mirage and again, that sort of they builds up their trust over time of experiencing it. So thinking a bit more, I guess, about investor psyche and attitude to risk. When we think about things like active versus passive management, we sort of think about it in terms of almost do you have a risk budget to go active is the way I quite often see it. But my feeling is that in the more retail space, there is a lot more focus on active and not so much on the passive. But have I got that right? My own passion area sort of getting into ethical investing in ESG, I think it's virtually impossible to do that in a passive way. I think that increasingly, if people care about how their money is invested, you want to be investing in a fund where the fund manager is making judgment calls that respect your ethics, and a passive is not doing this whatsoever. So I think that's where the asset management industry has more opportunity to add value. And it's quite possibly why we've seen 
a large drive in growth in ESG. Is that an area of conversations that's engaging people quite well, do you think, once you start talking to them about the environmental considerations relating to their investments and social consideration? It's obviously been a huge sea change in the industry, I would say. Generally, we've all seen it over the last couple of years. That has really come of age. Are you seeing that in conversations with individuals as well? Yeah. So when I was advising, so back, I offered ethical investments right from the start of when I was advising 10 years ago. And I remember going to conferences and speaking to other financial advisors and then like literally laughing at me and saying, oh, but you're in Brighton. You're all knitting your own hem underwear down there. Of course, you're talking about ethical investments. But there may have been an element of that. I was based in Caroline Lucas's constituency. There definitely is more of a vibe of people being more conscientious in more sort of ethical supermarkets and things like that. I also think the difference was I was having the conversations. I was asking people if this was something they were interested in. And I think coming back to what a financial advisor's role is, it's about understanding a client's interests and goals and objectives and then helping to make the money fit that. And if you're not asking them about what's important to them and whether they have interest in how their money's invested, then I don't think you can really say you're fulfilling those objectives. If you don't know what those objectives are and I think the clients are there to be led to an extent. They don't understand that much. They want their money to be invested. They may not know much more beyond that. And I think it's the industry. You've got the asset management industry creating more products at this space. And you've got a growing awareness in the public about the need for this. And advisors and platforms are really that route to market. And that's where we need more innovation in this space to improve that. And we have seen that. We have seen bits of it. I got into a Twitter discussion a couple of weeks ago with somebody still maintaining like ESG is some sort of fad and they don't really think people are that interested in this. People just want to make money. I suppose it's, I guess, I just don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. You can make money and do good. And sorry, I feel like I might be jumping on to further questions you might be asking, but I think the rise of things like TikTok influencers and people talking about investing online that we're seeing in these much younger demographics, they want to know where their money's invested. Now, it might not be particularly with an ethical overlay, but what interests people about investing is investing in things they understand and believe in, whether that's a company that they like shopping from or a service that they can see why that works. That gets people more interested than just put your money in here and get 5%. You can do both. And I think the industry really needs to adapt to that, I think, if we're going to continue to engage people of all ages. I definitely want to come back to the TikTok point because I spent about half an hour on TikTok hashtag investing the other day and I got some interesting thoughts to share. But Have you put it all in Bitcoin, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not yet a TikTok investing influencer, sadly, but oh my goodness, the amount of views that some of those people have on there. But let's come back to that in a sec because that is a super interesting sort of area. But Give us a sense of some, how some of those conversations go when you say to people things like, I presume, look, do you want your investments to be less environmentally impactful? Do you want them to be more socially impactful? People respond positively to those conversations by the sound of it, and not just in Brighton. They quickly realize, and you quickly have to explain to them that obviously you're not going to fit things to their personal ethics. It's very much a broad brush unless you've got enough money to go to a DFM and have a portfolio built bespoke for you, which is an interesting route to go down. I went down that with clients as well. And that's particularly fun if people have got very specific criteria. And why shouldn't they? It's their money. If they can afford it and they want that, why should they not invest entirely exactly what they want? But for most people, this sort of broad brush approach can feel... So an example I'll throw out is that a lot of people care about 
may feel that big financial institutions are not something they would want to invest in. So I had a couple of times when people saying, I can't believe HSBC is 5% of this fund. Like what? How is that ethical? And if you want to go super ethical and investing entirely in impact funds, again, there's not many financial advisors who would divert you down that route. So you mentioned just earlier, almost the trend with younger investors really wanting to know exactly where their money's going to. Are there any other sort of differences in the conversations when the conversation is with someone in their 20s versus 30s versus 50s? Are there any other sort of trends that you've noticed over time? Younger people are probably more aware of these things, but I think it'll be more like a trickle up effect to older generations where they will start to demand these things too once they know that those options are out there. But yes, I felt like what I was advising clients, it was more about having that sort of compromise of you are having an ethical overlay. It may not coordinate exactly with your ethics but so one of my mantras I really like is don't let perfect be the enemy of good so it's better to have something and equally I think the younger people who are self-investing who are not being advised who are going for one company over another that's what I was doing in my early 20s I was investing in things when I then studied investments and understood modern portfolio theory I realized why actually it makes much more sense to put it into a fund but you wouldn't know that when you're starting out The industry is terrible at that, by the way. Our industry always lets perfects be the enemy of the good. And ESG is a good example. It's why some people criticize it because they're like, oh, but, but, but the data is not perfect. We can't be perfectly sure that this fund is perfectly aligned. And it's like, well, of course you can't. But is it good? Can we say it's better? Yeah, probably. So let's sort of get on with it. So it's a bugbear of mine as well that people kind of insist on criticizing something unless it's perfect, basically, which is the wrong way around. And I think as the sector evolves, I've been doing a lot of research into sort of ESG providers and different areas around it. I think you've got asset managers desperate to provide things in this space, but they don't know entirely what consumers want. They're creating funds and trying to have different overlays. And another challenge is people want information that's easily digestible and that they can see at a glance what something is. But I want it to be super ethical as well. And it's like, how do you market that? How do you kind of make it really simple and easy and quick, but also with sufficient rigor and depth and I think the more feedback loop we have understanding um, what consumers want and what their interests are and how to kind of gather that information feedback back it'll be a sort of ongoing cycle but yes but the let's not do nothing because that won't get us there. That's really interesting I mean just as part of our work with private wealth managers we were looking through a list of maybe 20 or 30 climate related funds the other day and it took us and we're experts we see funds all day long every day it took us a long time trying to understand what the differences were between them if any and so I, goodness knows how a consumer would try and approach that list of 30 funds and not differences are so the greater we can get to some sort of parity of different metrics that fund managers have to sort of give about their fund and that will hopefully then more common format and it will help consumers to compare. I think on the ESG side or people who are, I'm going to say people who are interested in ethics, I think perhaps it's more some sort of, it's more just a statement of what the fund manager's objectives are, which they already make these statements, but they're quite wishy-washy. It's not the right it term. It is the right term. It, it has, it is the right term. can't get a sense of it. <laughs> it absolutely is the right term, isn't it? They are wishy-washy. <laughs> and maybe you are. They're, they're wishy-washy. As a private individual reading it and comparing it, I wouldn't know what that manager is passionate about or what I can't interpret that to work out what judgment calls they would make on things that I cared about. And I suppose maybe something if they could move more towards that. I feel like I'd be creating an absolute nightmare for an asset manager investment writing team. And like you said, it's all about having that feedback loop, which is more difficult in individuals that aren't in an advised capacity, I guess. 
Final question from me on the sort of how individuals are feeling. Just interested, I guess, we're in March 2021. A couple of weeks ago, we had International Women's Day. Do you see much of a difference in terms of attitude or behaviour between women that you've advised and men that you've advised? And has that changed over time? I did think about this quite a lot when I was an advisor. And when I worked at Schroeder's, we did a big bit of research about this, actually. And the research confirmed my hypothesis from my own experience, which was that I think so we described it in terms of behavioural biases and the herd bias. So women tend to want to feel that they are making the same sort of decisions as their peer group, much more so than men. And I think this underpins a lot of the way I think women approach investments. So in my experience as an advisor, um, women tended to want a lot more information and they wanted to spend a lot more time researching and understanding that and consulting with maybe family members, maybe friends, maybe other people. And all of that obviously takes a lot more time and effort. And so if you put this sort of higher barrier to actually making the decision, then you're much more likely to not move forward. I also remember going to a crowdfunding platform, had an event about women investing years ago, and they wanted all their staff members to use their platform and become advocates. So when somebody joined, they gave them £50 in an account that they could go onto the platform and use. And they found it was something staggering, like 90% of the male staff members had done it within two weeks, whereas something like only 50% of the women had done it after six months. So they sort of said, how come you haven't done it? Oh, well, I wanted to read more and spend a bit more time thinking about it. And so I think that's a major sort of difference. And I don't think that's changed over time. And I suppose the flip side of that is I'd say the men are maybe, I'm saying it's sounding like I'm painting it in a negative way. The men are maybe a bit more gung-ho. They'll kind of make a slightly more off-the-cuff decision. They won't feel the need to kind of understand in, in that much detail. They will trust their instinct of this looks like the right thing to do. I'll do it. And I guess the happy medium is probably somewhere in the middle of the two extremes. And clearly not every individual is going to be at one of those extremes, but it's about marrying the information being available for those that want the information and the speed of implementation being available for those that want to move quickly, I guess, which all of which seems like it's moving in the right direction. Yes, I think so. Yeah. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's about, for women, building their confidence and having information that's much more easily accessible so that they can do this, but also just sort of I suppose normalising that behaviour, like I mentioned that I self-invested, I didn't realise that people didn't, that that wasn't that common because people just don't really talk about money. But I think one benefit of the TikTok influencers is people talking about money a lot more and getting that much more commonplace. And that some people will make mistakes for sure. But I just think the idea that young people are talking about investing is a really good thing. And hopefully auto-enrolment pensions as well. Everyone's got skin in the game now. And campaigns like Make My Money Matter about looking at how your pension's invested, whether you care about how it's invested. Well, I think whether it's climate change or whether it's something else or whether you actually just want to make money, just that raising awareness amongst young people, I think will have a much more engaged, financially literate population of people in their 20s and 30s, such that you wouldn't see people as an advisor, typical clients are still, they come to you in their early 60s, having never engaged with people before, really. Wow, yeah. That was a beautiful transition to our sort of almost final section. And Dan, you wanted to come back to your experience with TikTok. So do you want to let us know what you found? It's really interesting, Fleta. He makes such a positive case for it. And I think that's fantastic because I guess it's common among people like us, peers of mine, and certainly on the institutional side, to sort of, dare I say, mock the 
sort of people that you find on TikTok in terms of what they're saying. And I spent a bit of time on it the other day and it's a lot of people saying, hey, I made 10 grand in Tesla, 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 or Bitcoin or GameStop. It really is like just hundreds and hundreds of videos of people saying, let me show you how to trade stocks. This is how you trade stocks. And it's all just on the Robinhood platform, sticking money into a brokerage account might be levered and then just picking a couple of stocks, what's going to go up and down today. And I got a bit downheartened when I scrolled through sort of a few hundred of those. And I just kind of thought, oh, I haven't got the enthusiasm to go through this because there's just so much I felt bad information there, basically, because they're encouraging individual day trading, which is, I'm tempted to say, is the opposite of what you should be doing in terms of long term. But actually, what you're saying is not quite the opposite. Maybe it's a stepping stone to a better place, which is a more positive take on it. I think things that get people interested in and thinking about their finances are, on the whole, I think it's, it's good. And I think it's a challenge to the industry of why can we not engage like that? True. Why can we not be doing influence marketing? And I read through the FCA's guidance the other day around social media marketing, and we're hemming ourselves in too much. The regulator is hemming us in too much that if I'm bringing some sort of company to the fore again, I'm going to push the envelope in terms of how we can market to people and to make it more engaging. Because another sort of my hobby horse is gambling, advertising around gambling and how they're allowed to advertise. And a stat that I found crazy was that it was a few years ago, but it's pretty much the same each year. In 2018, double the amount of money was spent on online gambling sites in the UK than flowed into collective investment funds. 14.5 billion went into gambling, 7.5 billion went into collective investment funds. So a lot of people think I don't have enough money to invest and there's too many barriers to entry. And I think things like whereas gambling looks quick and easy and a couple of clicks of the button and you've done it. And that's what the sort of TikTok influencers and the Robin Hood platforms, some of the newer platforms are trying to tap into that. They're trying to make it quick, easy, fun, engaging, which I think, I don't know if I would say it's the industry so much, Dan, or it's the way we've been regulated that's imposed upon us that that's not a good thing. But if you don't engage people, you don't have customers effectively. That's so. a fantastic point. You look at the engagement these TikTok videos have, it's unbelievable. Like hundreds of thousands, millions of views, followers. There is engagement there like I could only ever dream of getting from the sort of investment (laughs) stuff that I put out on the blogs that I write. So I I was thoroughly jealous of them. Let's not beat around the bush. (laughs) But no, but it's an interesting point. So is it the industry or is it the regulator? Sounds like it's a bit of both, maybe mainly the regulator. But do you think the industry could step up a little bit more and push the limits of what isn't allowed a bit more often? I think it's that. I think the regulator contains us, but it's for the industry to kind of push that envelope a little bit and to find how you can play around the edges. And I think you get conditioned into thinking, this is the way I've got to play and these are the rules and I can't do this and I can't. Lots of organizations just have rules like we don't use social media. Don't do it. Or if you do do it, you've got to get it approved by somebody. And then you're just like, well, that doesn't make sense. You can't do that in any timely fashion. It's finding ways of doing that and not letting the risk side of the business control the business completely. Because it's not just about engaging younger people, it's about engaging everybody. And again, a common sort of business thing that people sort of talk about is our customers are not just comparing us with different financial services organizations. They're comparing us with every other interaction they have in their life. They'll be looking at the customer service they get from Apple and from Google and from Facebook and that sort of interconnectivity. They will increasingly expect that of other providers. I guess, well, with a lot of this being sort of online and at people's fingertips, 
it is much more directly comparable what service they get from various providers. If you rolled back 15 years, the way that you invested versus the way you banked versus the way you did your grocery shopping was extremely different. Whereas now, for some people, it's almost exactly the same thing. Exactly. Yeah, and there's really two problems, I guess, in finance. You've already mentioned the trust thing. So there's a trust barrier. People literally worried about they're ever seeing this money again. It's kind of funny, isn't it? Because we worry about is the risk 10.5 or 10.6% or something? An exaggeration, <laughs> but that's the sort of thing. Whereas individuals are sat there thinking, am I ever going to see any of this money again? So there's the trust bit. But there's also the sense that a lot of the finance is just stuck in the dark ages in terms of engagement and customer experience, design, UX, all those things that most other providers in their life have sorted out over the last 10 years. So a couple of really big challenges there for the industry. So Claire, as we wrap up this episode, and Dan, you've just given a really nice summary of what we've spoken about. What's the one thing that you'd want listeners to take away from today? It's about really sort of challenging what you can do to try and be more engaging for customers. And just in all aspects of your business, trying to be a better business rather than sort of being hemmed in by the regulations, looking for opportunities to drive improvements and putting yourself in the customer's shoes. I think that was another thing that I sort of seen. I felt that I've often encountered amongst other people that I've sort of said, well, thinking as a customer, and I feel like I've often had the mind blown reaction. And I'm like, <laughs> but you're all people. Think about it if it was you or it was your mum or your child or whoever the appropriate demographic is and think, how would they react to this message or this interface? Is it achieving what we want rather than sort of looking at it in sort of our narrow sort of financial services constraints, I suppose. Cool. And Claire, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing in investing for individuals? How interested people could be in how their money is invested. So I think that's kind of the sort of thread of our overall conversation. There's such a disconnect between a collective investment fund in a pool of funds that are in a portfolio that's got some risk rating that's called this between what that is and where your actual money is invested. And I think that increasingly people are going to want to see more understanding of that, of where their money is actually invested and what it means about giving voting rights to make decisions at an AGM that influence a company's behaviour. And I think not just from an ethical perspective, but from a, I want to influence what my money is doing and why. Fantastic. That's a really good answer. So Claire, finally from me, do you have any recommendations for the listeners, books, TV shows, podcasts, films? Two books that I'm reading that I'm really enjoying, From Good to Great by Jim Collins, which is really a business book about how you take your company to the sort of next level, and Growing the Pie by Alex Edmonds. And that book is about sort of looking at saying that you can do the right thing in business by your customers and by your employees and by your communities and rather than thinking that you've got to like eat up someone else's pie you can grow the overall pie so everybody can be better off such an important message brilliant nice message claire it's been an absolutely great conversation today thank you so much for your time oh thank you i've really enjoyed it thanks dan thanks for joining us today claire that's all we've got time for this week on investment uncut but please join us again next week for another episode Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.